You're listening to the Coffee Clatch Crew podcast with your hosts, Jason and Christina. Consider it your digital water cooler. I do hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Coffee Clutch Crew, The Stand, episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we take our stand with a full review of episode one, The End. Written by Josh Boone and Ben Cavill, directed by Josh Boone, IMDb is currently giving this a 6.2 and Rotten Tomatoes a 54%. As we mentioned in the instant coffee, there is some criticism of this. With quotes from the critic including, Despite an A-list cast and smattering of poignant moments, the stand's extended runtime doesn't make for better storytelling. The mix of realism and fantasy results in a disjointed, tonally inconsistent work that manages to both over-condense aspects of the original saga and overstay its welcome. So we discussed that the splitting of the timeline, jumping around, not doing it in a linear fashion, is frustrating to some people. I think in listening further to the comments, I understand their fears that we are going to miss out on some of the stuff we worried about, seeing enough of the outbreak, Captain Tripp spreading, them traveling across the country. And without saying too much, I think this is coming from people that got a couple of screeners (laughs) and so maybe have seen a few episodes and their fear is, is starting to peak. But we talked at length in the instant that we've only seen the first episode, and so far we love what they're doing here. I reserve the right to change my mind if they mess that up in future episodes, but so far I really liked it. Of course. Now we do keep in mind that we're coming to this show with a knowledge. After being able to sit with this and look at the internet and see what our clatchers are saying, remember our instant coffee episode was right after we watched it. We didn't hear from anybody. Most people didn't see it yet. But hearing our Clatchers, and and we'll get to them during the Clatchers comments section, they are having some difficulty with the timeline jumps, which forced me to really look back and think about it. There's some things that you have no idea what's going on, which, again, episode one, I think it's fine to have no idea. But if Boone does this for the entire show, like season two of Westworld... It is going to piss a lot of people off. Yeah, I'm also thinking about the newest adaptation of Little Women and how I really struggled with them breaking the timeline apart, Mm. not just because it's confusing, but because I felt you are missing something in the character development of being able to see how they respond to certain situations in a chronological fashion, what's pushing and pulling them in certain directions. Now, for the opening, I like them juxtaposing that against the superflu because it would feel like you're dropped in the middle of this apocalyptic event. You have no idea what's going on, what's happening to the rest of the world. It makes it more scary to not have all the answers. I think once we start to form up with the story a little more, I would like to see it gradually shift to a little more straight storytelling. So we'll see what happens once we get a few episodes in. Yeah, the feeling of not knowing what's going on after this epidemic that we're currently in, we can absolutely empathize with what's going on. Mm -hmm. We're nobodies, so we were not in the know about corona. And some you read in the news, I'm not getting political, I don't know enough to be political, But you read that we knew about it for like half a year prior. But for us, for me specifically, I learned about the impact in one day. They were like, everything's shut down. Go home from work. You're working from home. Guess what? There's no TP. (laughs) You know what I mean? It was like, I don't know what's going on. Oh, my God. Do we have enough food? Christina's like, you're a fat fuck. Do do we have enough food? These little signs, you know, people starting to cough and get sick all around you. I like the heightened 
fear oh, yeah. that we're seeing in the show. Every time someone sneezes now, they have to wonder. And again, in real life, I'm thinking back to... The first couple of weeks when we had no idea. Well, no, I got sick right after Christmas last year, end of December, beginning of January, and I went to a walk-in. And everybody seemed to be sick with the same thing. Everyone's cough sounded exactly like mine. Mm-hmm. And the medical professionals at the walk-in, the doctors and the nurses, were wearing masks. This was way before anybody in public was wearing masks. I had never seen that before. I had seen occasionally doctors in hospitals wear them, but you're talking everyone at the emergency medical center. And I was like, there must be some really bad strain of the flu flu going around or something. Some kind of super flu. (laughs) They diagnosed me with pneumonia, and I guess a lot of people early on were diagnosed diagnosed with with pneumonia. Yeah. And then, you know, little things starting to creep in the way that we see here. So it does feel a lot more impactful. And I do like, as you say, we get the vantage point of sort of everyday people who don't really know from Harold and Franny. Mm -hmm. But we also get the inside look so that we get information, exposition through Stu's encounters with the CDC, Dr. Ellis and Starkey. So that when someone coughs like the nurse, there's that pause and you can actually feel the pause. You can understand it. Yeah, and you're getting the true insides. What is Project Blue? We'll break that down a little bit more because that was the official name in the books for what was going on here with the military operation. Mm. But let's start off in the beginning, like we always do with these full episodes. We're going to talk about the title as well as New Faces and Places. Oh, Christina, something we noticed (laughs) in our coffee break after playback is that we introduced ourselves twice. And I think it was because it was late night. We were trying to get the episode out. We got overexcited. Sorry about that. (laughs) The title of this premiere is called The End, which makes a lot of sense. Oh, it does. The end of the norm, the end of life as you know it. The end of the world. In the book, we discuss that they break it down into three sections or three books. Book one being called Captain Trips. And in the 94 series, there were four episodes. Episode one, The Plague. So we have Captain Trips, The Plague, The End. We're not going to talk a lot about music. Unfortunately, we haven't gotten to watch this a second time. No. So I wasn't able to pick up on some of the details. But I'll tell you, the score was awesome. The score was amazing. Just the sounds behind it. What about when... uh flag comes. Yeah. At first I was like, that doesn't make sense. And then it started hitting and I was like, oh God, this does make sense. I go back to, I do still really miss the guitar music from the 94 series. Our our opening sequence. It felt very iconic and I want to see more of this one so I know how it fits. But the original score for this series was composed by Nate Walcott and Mike Mogus. For this one? Correct. Okay. And apparently they've contributed to other Josh Boone works in the past. And we did notice one actual song called Fur by Blitz and Trapper that's playing as the cleanup is going on Oh yeah, yeah. in Boulder. And during Harold's memoir writing, we get The Stranger. And here comes The Stranger, who was the wolf, and out comes uh, Flag. Flag's many manifestations. And at first, I was like, the whistling, it's too m- melodic. Mm-hmm. Then they managed to edit it more creepy. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, it's welcoming. Well, that's to... what they, they did with the trailer music that we're wondering if they're going to incorporate into the actual show because they take what's a very happy, mm-hmm. relaxing song and make it terrifying. Well, this one, it's uh, he's trying to coax people into his group, right? So you want to be welcoming, but it, it's got that little twang to it. Danger, Billy Joel danger. And uh, it's called The Stranger. Perfect. 
What I'm still waiting for, though, and we have to get it during the pandemic portions, the most important song from the original, Don't Fear the Reaper, Blue Oyster Cult. That's got to be later, right? It was the very first episode of the 90. I forgot about that. And that was specifically mentioned in the novel by Stephen King. He does Hmm. prefaces to certain sections where he (laughs) quotes famous works. We're going to talk about Yeats later, songs. He mentions Bruce Springsteen quite a few times, so... Who wouldn't? I mean, we need Blue Oyster Cult. I wonder if they're going to avoid it. Don't. You can't. It's... I know. Embrace the 94. It's not even the the 94. It's it's iconic to the whole series. It's not like it's the scoring from the 94, which I would get. Well, let me tell you this. This is a guess, but knowing that Stephen King is the writer of the last episode. If no one uses it, I'm 89% sure <laughs> that he's going to use we gotta it. you got to put that in there. <laughs> okay, let's talk new faces and places for the episode, of course. Who do we meet here? Everybody's new. Well, we'll break them down into those from Project Blue and those from Boulder. From Project Blue, of course, you start out with Campion. In the 94, played by Ray McKinnon, and in this version, Curtis Cook Jr., he is patient zero. And we talked in the instant coffee that it's nice... We close the episode with him this time. I have to be honest with you, and, and Clatchers are going to be like, you idiot. I just pieced together that that car that ran into the gas station. Oh, you didn't know that was, was Campion? Because he wasn't wearing his army fatigues. Yeah. So he had driven straight from Vegas, got as far as he could, which was Arnett, Texas. Wow. Haps gas station. But he had stopped many places along the way. And that's why Stu is telling Dr. Ellis, you think you're going to quarantine us till you can trace all of his movements? It's out now. That's impossible. You know how many people he's infected? Yeah. And I I do like in the novel getting those beats of small moments. You know, he interacts with somebody, then that person goes to the deli Mm -hmm. or the diner. And it says the waitress didn't know the $5 tip he handed her was crawling with death. Yeah. Um, You know, it'll walk you through 10 different scenarios so that you can kind of feel the plague spreading out in this uncontrollable, fast-moving arc that no one can stop. Stephen King, the way he uses his words, that's something that is unequaled. Arguably, you can people bring up other authors, but I haven't heard or read words as beautiful as his. In the stand full copy audiobook, just his talking before he starts the, the actual book. Oh, he's famous it's for that. It's amazing. Yeah, I love that. And I put it in our bonus, I think, or coffee break. Read this before you actually buy the book so you know what you're getting into. He was talking about the possibility of it being a, uh, a show. Mm-hmm. He gets into that. Yeah, so good. And there are times, of course, where the things he says are sort of wacky and he coins his own phrases that... It just don't make a lot of sense. He repeats things a lot also for emphasis, and that's why they stay in your head, such as no great loss. But there are times where the prose is incredibly elevated, like you said. It's written so beautifully. And I I really do enjoy that the book disperses. You have these super in-depth and almost myopic views of what's happening through the eyes of Franny or Stu or Harold. But then occasionally he will zoom out to the 50,000-foot view, and you'll get these just two-sentence relays from random people around the world where the plague is spreading. What's going on? And so you really feel like you have a a crow's eye view, Uh. so to speak. You can kind of like swoop down and look in, but then back up and see the big picture. 
I think that's going to be really hard to get in a TV series, and I don't see them doing that yet. But I hope every once in a while they do take a step back. Moving along with our faces, though, in Project Blue, we talked about Dr. Ellis. Here, played by Hamish Linklater, I mentioned that he was sort of a mix of several characters, but also something completely different. There were two doctors related to the CDC in both the book and 94 series. Dr. Denninger, played by Max Wright, who came in first when Stu started saying he wasn't going to do any more tests until someone gave him the answer. But Stu remarks that he knew this first person wouldn't be able to really tell him anything. Mm. And so eventually they bring in Dr. Dietz. He's the one who does give a little more of the breakdown, but is not nearly as nice, does not develop the relationship that Ellis does with Stu. That's most of my doctors, by the way. They don't give a shit about you. And he tries to (laughs) stop Stu from leaving eventually. So he winds up kind of being a bad guy. He's played by Sherman Howard. So this Dr. Ellis is kind of a different character. I like this one better. You also have General Starkey, played in the 94 by Ed Harris. Your favorite actor, one of yours. But J.K. Simmons, I I mean, mean, come on. Yeah, I thought, how are they going to top that? And nobody knew that Ed Harris was going to be in this role in the 94 until he appeared. No one knew J.K. Yeah. But I think it would have been cool if they, as I say it, I don't mean it, but it would be cool if Ed Harris reprised the role. Oh, yeah. You know, and then have J.K. somewhere else. Because I don't want to lose J.K. because he's awesome. Mm -hmm. But regardless, well done. The way he moves out of the shadows and you're not quite sure who it's going to be. But you do know it is this person who is in a position of authority. Finally, Stu gets to meet with somebody who can tell him what the hell is going on. He's in charge of Project Blue. I like that he makes allusion to even with this high level kind of operation. And we're going to talk more, as I said, General Starkey and Project Blue are going to be in our closer look section later on in the spoilers, because I'm going to go more into it. But here in the miniseries, you see, yes, it's this big thing between the military, the government, the CDC, and yet the left hand still doesn't really know what the right hand is doing. There's so much discombobulation. This is how the virus got out in the first place. This is part of the reason why we can't effectively contain it. Nobody knows whose man Cobb was. Who did Cobb report to? We don't know. Well, He uh, just showed up. I see it on a micro level with my job. We don't know what other departments are doing. All of a sudden, they bought something, a software that we already have, uh, a different software that does the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to guess that at this point, he wasn't working for any other agency except for Flag. And I think Flag wanted oh, to dead. Oh, that's interesting. When it's too dead, that's nip it a in good the bud. thought. And you know, I might have said I don't know about that in the past, but this series is doing another thing that I wanted to discuss. I'm glad you bring it up. That is different from either of the previous versions. Flag himself has more of a hand, a direct hand, in the events that are taking place here. Yes, in the books, he could appear places just mm-hmm. instantaneously as a crow, as a wolf, check out what's going on, see how the tides are turning. Has his time come again to be reborn, to take another shot at this thing? But he is not, at least at this point, not until later on, actively intervening to try to sway things to his side. Here he is. I mean, at the very end of the episode, you remarked, the fact that Campion was able to get out of that guard station. That was his foot was because of his foot holding open the door. And there's a couple moments like that when Harold trips on his bike. Oh, that was a crow. And he falls off. The crow is there and flies away. You get emotionally abused and broken and you can take him in easier. 
I don't think he's just watching. He is taking part yeah. in some of these events. And so, yeah, could it go as far as to he's kind of sent an agent of his in the form of, of Cobb to mess things up, to take a man off the board? I think so. Absolutely. You ever notice in books, in fables, in movies, shows, literaries, it always feels like the devil or what's representative of evil always has a cheat code, always can do more than the good can, than God or whoever's representing God. It feels at this point, in this episode, it's one episode, uh, we saw Mother Abigail for a moment, but we saw a lot more of Flag. And we saw Flag actually, like you said, manipulating situations. Mm-hmm. I mean, that door, that's one of those emergency doors that you cannot keep open with mm-hmm. your foot, with your arm, with a body. The body would just cut in half. <laughs> yeah. And in the books, it was just luck or circumstance or people being incompetent that allows these things to happen. Or you would say whispers on the shoulder of a man. Yeah, but not even. Just like that mechanism failed or somebody didn't check that thing that they were supposed to or a man abandoned his post when he knew it wasn't the right thing to do they weren't influenced that's just the chaotic nature of the world and of humanity later as i say there there is maybe some partaking and there is maybe some power they call it white magic to mother abigail's side as well yes but definitely at a disadvantage and we're going to talk more on that when we get to good versus evil Let's continue to our new faces in Boulder. We'll be brief on Harold because we talked about him at length. But as a reminder, in the 94, he was played by Corin Nemec and here by Owen Teague. Now, this isn't the first time we've seen Owen Teague in a King adaptation. Another movie that we actually reviewed, It Chapter 1, he played Patrick Hockstetter. A bad guy. A bad guy. And he was also in, along with many other programs, Black Mirror, the episode titled Archangel. He was Trick. Oh. He likes to play uh, these kind of characters. It's interesting. He's really good at it. He did a very good job here. Smart and resourceful, but also narcissistic, possessive, dangerous, odd. Lacking empathy. Even an understanding, I would say, of the way other people work. That's a sign of a psychopath? Sociopath. Sociopath. I always get that wrong. Next up, we had Franny Goldsmith, of course, Molly Ringwald in the 94, Odessa Young here. Uh, We talked about some of the maybe lack of depth here. There's a quote from another article that says, there's a lot left to be desired when it comes to the character development of Franny. She feels flat here in the pilot, already lacking the specificity and depth she's richly drawn with in the novel. Yeah, and you were saying... You felt that they were undermining that character. And I was doing the typical Libra Jason thing where I was trying to give you like, well, maybe this wasn't her episode. And I'm still going to stick to that. I feel I'm going to be very positive until they prove me wrong that they're going to find a way in this new adaptation to make her more valuable. You're supposed to be on the Randall Flagg side, so no, you no, should no. be arguing. I told you it would be nice if I maybe, could do that. Maybe we could pull her over to the Vegas group. Maybe these are <laughs> signs that Franny could break bad this no. time around. We had a, a couple Clatchers who agreed with you before even listening to you, which, is, which uh, feels good. Mm. Linda R. said, why the actual fuck <laughs> did you guys turn the strong, heroic, proactive Franny into a simpering, suicidal idiot? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as I say, it was also articles, people writing about this. I did feel good that I wasn't the just only one. nitpicking. Yeah. That there when really you first said it, issue. I was like, Christina, you're just being a pain in the ass. 
But now we have validation, so now, uh, you know, I feel you. <laughs> well, I go back to, I did have issues, too, with the 94 character just being more of a foil for both Harold and Stu. Mm. There were some things that made her good, but a lot more from the books. Mm-hmm. I feel like we've taken, so far, another step down, even, from the 94, because we hardly get anything at all for Franny here, and, and definitely nothing to balance out the scales quite yet. But we're going to wait to see, once we get our Franny episode, what they do with that. If we do. Next up, we got Stu Redman in the 94, played by Gary Sinise, here by James Marsden. I think we talked enough about him in the instant. I just want to say that there was a great quote characterizing him, that he makes a solid viewer surrogate, dumped into the middle of a chaotic and frightening world where he has to piece things together for himself. So in addition to being the sort of quintessential good guy, he is also the everyman. If you were in this story, you can see yourself watching through the eyes of Stu Redman. I wouldn't have the balls that he has. I wouldn't be speaking to generals or people with guns like, what's your problem, you know? He's very strong. (laughs) Why are you asking me these questions? He's very strong, but I like that in the story, it's always because of his moral compass. Mm -hmm. I don't even know if it's that he's courageous. He is. But he has the very firm view on what's right and what's wrong. And if it's wrong, he's going to stand up for it. If people are in trouble, he's going to help them. And that's why even his actions, such as killing someone, I don't see. As bad. As as bringing his scales down to the potential other side. No, he had to. He had no other choice. Mm -hmm. And considering what we think of that character being a flag's uh, henchman already. For sure, he had to do it. Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of James Marsden. It's only been one episode. Gary Sinise is one of my favorite characters from the mm-hmm. 94 version. So if James Marsden just makes it where I, I'm i not pining for Gary, it's a win. And that's what's happening for me so far. I enjoy him. Two other characters that we see in present-day Boulder. The first one is the former EMT in charge of the burial committee that I wasn't sure about his name. In this series, he's called Norris. He didn't exist in the 94. First name Chuck. (laughs) And he's played by the actor Nicholas Lee. I like him. I don't know if we'll see much more of him because he is a new character, but perhaps so because he seems like one of the leaders. And there's something likable about him and impactful. And we saw two speeches from him in one episode. So mm-hmm. maybe... There's no shame, son. No, sir. I was an EMT 26 years. I thought we'd see my share of death, but this... Seven billion people dead. You want to puke, son. You go right ahead. I think we'll definitely see more of Teddy Wyzak, who was a character in the 94. And guess who played him? Stefan Kingley. Stephen King himself. He was also in the books. I think he's going to have an even bigger role here, played by Eon Bailey, because he's the one who kind of becomes friendly with Harold, and they do give him more of a backstory, his own hopes and desires. So I think he'll at least pop in and out. So to sum that up, so far on the side of good, we have Stu and Mother Abigail, definitively. On the side of evil, we have Randall Flagg. And in The Undecided, I put both Franny and Harold. Franny is the first to get dreams of Mother Abigail, but we don't have any action to know what she's going to do in this story, which side she would even fall on. Well, we've seen it in this episode. Uh, Just because Mother Abigail went to her doesn't mean she is meant to be good, because we saw that Flagg appeared to Stu. Yes. But I mean, the way he reacted to it, Flag was like, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> yes, but you're correct. In the novels, 
many people got dreams of both, regardless of if they wound up in Boulder or Vegas. Uh, they might have more of one versus the other. Mm. But they saw both kind of as though you have free will to decide here. Absolutely. And I think the more you started maybe choosing in your mind aside, the more clear that became. Sure. Actually, you know what? The more I think about it, I think Flag acted as a disruptor for Mother Abigail because, because Stu was in the cornfield, which is Mother Abigail's home. Mm-hmm. I think he infiltrated it because what happened right after that? One of his soldiers came in to try to kill him. Mm-hmm. I think he was trying to just stop it right there. And that would happen in the dreams where, for some, weasels would appear in the corn. And they were a representation of flag. What are the kids? Because we, we heard that children of the corn type kids. Well, yeah, so that's new. I don't know if I like this. The dreams in the book in the 94, when you would see Mother Abigail, the dreamer would come to, would come out of the corn to the front porch of the house. Right, I remember that. Where they would find her playing guitar. It was very peaceful. We don't get that warm feeling. She's on the rocking chair. Yeah, here they just appear in this center of the corn where there is a circle bent down very much like in the tall grass. Yeah. Another king property. Yeah, with random sounds of children, like children of the corn. I don't know if they're just throwing in Easter eggs. I, I think it is. I don't I don't totally love that. Well, do you love it if, as they get closer, they'll get to the porch? Yes. I think that'll make it better. Yes. I think that needs to happen to start delineating a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I think that's what they're doing. And uh, if you give a little couple wink winks, you know I love that. Little uh, metadata. Yeah, normally I do, as long as it doesn't mess with what I think are other important things. Mm. Um, and then there's some things that, I don't know, they're changing for reasons I can't quite figure out, such as Mother Abigail's home. She tells Franny, come see me at Hemingford home, Colorado. In the originals, it's Nebraska. So that's why it's a, a farm, a cornfield. That's where she lives. The characters start heading there. And then they have to move to where everyone's coalescing in Boulder, Colorado. Right. There's a reason why they wind up at Boulder that I won't say yet. Are they just cutting Nebraska totally out of the picture in this series? Is it going to be a town close by in Colorado? They don't want them to do that much traveling. But again, does that mean we're cutting down on the journey to portion? I wonder. And the other thing is that Harold mentions he wants to go to the CDC Center in Atlanta, not Stovington, Vermont, which is where they go initially. It makes sense because it's close, very close to Maine. If there's a center there, why would you say we're going to go all the way to one that's in Atlanta? And we know they have to wind up at Stovington or somewhere near because they have to meet up with Stu. Huh, curious. So is that just his initial plan? I mean, Harold's pretty smart. You think he would know that there's one right there in Vermont. Anyway, wrapping up this good versus evil thing and the struggle I'm sure we're going to see ongoing for many characters, there is a quote from the books that I love. Now, Jason, you can think on which character you believe this might come from. Okay. And I'll tell you in the future. It says, no one can tell what goes on in between the person you were and the person you become. No one can chart that blue and lonely section of hell. There are no maps of the change. You just come out the other side. Or you don't. How the fuck did you do that? It just seems like something he would say. That was the first thought in my head. Let's jump into our crow's eye view. Just like in the instant, we're going to break it down 
So it's a little bit easier to understand. Instead of going through it beat by beat as they do in the episode, we're going to talk past events from Harold and Franny and Stu and the CDC and then present in Boulder. But we're not going to rehash much of what we did last time. We're just going to talk about things we didn't get to. Starting out in Agunquit, Maine, where we're introduced to Harold, we talked about feeling our empathy for him as he is bullied and ostracized. Very briefly feeling empathy for him. (laughs) But then also the creepiness, what's going on here. We forgot to mention even that all of that peeping and weirdness culminates in a scene where he's actually masturbating to a picture of Franny. Yeah, that was creepy. Uh, That too, well, the fact that he incessantly masturbates is from the books. Okay. I wouldn't even get into the details. This is where sometimes King gets a little bit... (laughs) But... We get all of that, I think, done really well here. Keep in mind, and I like the way this show is doing it, try to keep an eye out for the following episodes when you see the crow. What does it do to influence what's going on? Or something else. Will we see, as you say, an influencer from the side of good? Oh, yeah. Because we've never gotten that before, but I think they're remixing a little here. I dig it. So when he was on the bike, the crow was on the ground. He was going to get away. He ended up crashing his bike and getting uh, dismantled and messed up in the face, and then having to walk the broken bike while everyone looked and laughed. It equates to a pivotal moment in his character journey. We also meet Franny Goldsmith. An important note here that she was talking to her father Mm -hmm. and wanted to have an important conversation with him, but said it could wait until later. Now, it's not a spoiler because we see by the end of the episode that she is super pregnant, that she is already pregnant at this point, very early on. And we get an incredibly meaningful conversation with them. I'm not going to go into where that goes because there's some important character beats for her prior to all of this with her family, with herself. And I'm really, really hoping we're going to get more of the Franny insider and see some of that stuff later. I think once she meets Stu, and again, not a spoiler because we saw that Stu and her together, Mm -hmm. that's when we'll start to see it because she'll be telling Stu about it and we'll find out more about her past. What it was like with Harold before they joined up. Yeah. And now I'm going to take a guess with her trying to kill herself. She wasn't doing it because she was depressed. I think she was doing it to save her baby from being born into this world. Because it was after the news. That is super dark and not the viewpoint. And I'm not saying right, wrong, good, bad. Just not what the original Franny character would have done. The Mm. baby was a big reason For her to keep moving on and everything she did in the books, Mm -hmm. she had to survive. She had to get through because of the baby. What if something we haven't seen yet, it was actually Flag who basically made her do it? Well, that's why I said, are we going to get some more grayness for Mm -hmm. a character like Franny? Do we know which side she's going to fall on yet? I think some of the background interactions with her family could have you questioning even more. It's going to add a lot of richness. As I mentioned, the only thing I don't want to happen is her for her just to be a foil to the character of Harold and the character of Stu, which is how some prior representations and now are making it seem a bit. Uh, that would be very disappointing. But I also enjoy that through both of these characters, we get those repeated signs of the virus creeping up early on. So in the talk with her father, he says he's burning up. Mm. He's going to lay down. She says hardly anyone showed I think meaning to Amy's bridal shower, because they all have what you have. Then Harold goes home. His mother is sick. Father's calling out of work. I like the early fear that's being instilled where you can feel that something's happening and you Mm. don't quite know what. 
But then they move pretty quickly to sometime later. We don't even know how long. But the streets are empty. There's dead bodies all around a gunquit. Harold's calling out for survivors and only finds Franny, who's burying her father. She has him dressed in his medals and dog tags. Another thing we didn't get into is how vividly, and I think well, they are displaying the superflu victims. I mean, his body was pretty grotesque. Mm -hmm. They do some of the things from the 94 that you can see it's a respiratory disease. King literally characterizes it as people choking on their own snot. And you you can hear it. You can see it. The people that are alive and are coughing cob pretty disgusting but also that some of them got what he called tube neck and that's why it was another name for the virus you saw that with her father looks disgusting so not only is it terrifying because it's over 99 percent fatality but it's just a an awful way to go yeah you know and i think what was most worrisome about it in the old story was that originally it just looked like a flu and it would take a while to realize that it was something else talk more on that later in our closer look What I think is something to point out here, Franny is reluctant to even respond when Harold first starts calling out. Even though she knows, like he does, there's nobody left. Yeah. This is how averse she is to him, how off-putting Harold is. It's not like in the normal course of life, I really don't want to talk to this creepy kid, Harold. There's nobody left. You are terrified. She still wonders, should she call back to him? With what she's going through right now, would you want to talk to anybody? If I thought I could potentially be the last... Per- For all she knows, she could be the last person left alive anywhere. Well, I guess you're right. And you hear somebody, anyone, even if it's somebody I hate, there would be a sense of relief that you're not alone. But I think that speaks volumes about who Harold is. Also, when they talk, he mentions she's had past experience with loss, right? After all, her brother? They don't say anything more about that. I'm going to tell you we know from the books, but I'm hoping that we'll find Uh, out more here. I think we're going to, yeah. Also, you get um, a split position between Harold and Franny that we see from many of the characters in the novel, some of them early on hoping that this is temporary, saying things like, surely someone in authority will step in eventually. Franny says, when the virus burns out, people will come, right? People in authority will come. Harold takes the other side. He protests that the government is the ones who did this in the first place, saying it was all over the internet before it went down. Quote, look what I made. It kills almost everyone. Isn't it great? And then someone spilled it. But he's so happy. It's obvious he's happy he has her all to himself now. Like, you're not acting correctly. Yes, that's true. I think... The distinction that's important here, though, is those who are trying to hold on to the old ways. There was some form of order. It will be that way again. It's okay. Surely there must be people alive. People at the CDC working on a cure. Someone will step in versus those who have realized 99.4% of people are gone. The structure is shot. We have to do for ourselves here. Nobody's coming. And that was a critical part of the journey that our characters make. As we mentioned, Harold and Franny... Split for the time here. That's when Franny gets the dream of Mother Abigail. But also we hear the president's radio address before all power goes out. And we are just getting snippets of things in the background. These were some of the small moments from the book that let you see the bigger point of view or what else was going on. They are tossing some of that in here, and I like it. You have to pay attention to everything. Newspapers in the background, radio broadcasts. This is more of a moment, of course. We can hear it clearly. Do you know who that voice was? 
I heard Vulture wondering if it was Brian Cranston. It is. Is it? Yep. Wow. Just star-studded. I wasn't sure if that was true or not. Well, the president says, We cannot afford to jump at shadows in the dark, but we must take this seriously. There are no truth to the rumors that this string of flu is fatal or that it was engineered by this government. We have never engaged in the clandestine manufacture of substances outlawed by the Geneva Convention. My fellow Americans, I ask you to do your part by remaining calm following the instructions of your emergency response personnel. Maintain order and alleviate mass hysteria. Mima is coughing. He's coughing. He, in the books, this is almost word for word, keeps saying, my fellow Americans, there is no truth to these vicious rumors. He's repeating himself. It's clear that he is a sick man. Even the president has contracted this, and we're going to see later with Stu... That was part of the point of this facility. The room he's in was meant for the vice president. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? In a bunker. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. there are definitely some real world... Parallels. Scary parallels. <clears throat> Stephen King actually uh, did an interview and he was pressing like, guys, I wrote this years ago. This has nothing to do with what's going on now with Corona. This well, is years ago. <laughs> a much different virus. Yeah. It's awfully fatal, over 99%. You know, as as opposed to much, much lower in current circumstances. Uh, I think it was 2%, if that. I mean, some people argue the other way. Who knows? But it, it's a totally different story, is sure. King's point. Um, I think the reality, though, there was a surge of repeated interest in movies like Contagion, going back to these storylines, seeing if there are things you can relate to more, understand more. I don't think with this adaptation... They were influenced by current events because they started filming well before in 2019. Oh, yeah. And I think they pretty much had the storyline set at that point. And the script was already written years Mm -hmm. before that. But anyway, back to the president's address. As you mentioned, he's coughing throughout. And then midway through, it cuts out. The power goes out. We haven't seen the aftermath too much yet. I mean, Franny and Harold at nighttime with candles on, battery-operated things. But this is going to get bad now. At some point, no internet, no power, no anything on top of all the other difficulties they're dealing with. Now, animals can get this too. Yep. Again, we're going to get to that in closer look. Because you don't see dogs, you don't see... Certain animals, I'll put it that way. Okay. We also get another piece of information because Harold's listening to a radio broadcast that's saying all major roads are blocked by army vehicles. It looks like the end of humanity blinking out. And the radio DJ then shoots himself on air. We hear the gun. Because he's going to die. I think this is a reference, much smaller part, and the result is different. But in the 94 series, there was a character called Ray Flowers, also from the books. But in the 94, it's played by Kathy Bates. Okay. And she's phenomenal in this little part. She is a radio broadcaster, and she keeps coming on even after everyone is gone. She goes up to the station by herself, turns on all the equipment, starts taking calls from people that are still around. All I can do is listen, but I'm going to keep this running. I'm going to give you guys as much information as I possibly can. I'll be here. Mm. Well, the government starts hearing about anybody trying to send out information on TV, on radio, and they are shutting them down quickly. She's on the air for a little while when a military team storms the station, breaks into her room, and shoots her. This was in the book. And she dies on air. It was in the book and also the 94 series. It might be in this one. Could be, or that could have just been the little nod to it right there. 
Yeah, maybe. What would you rather be in? This situation or A Quiet Place? I'm going to say this one. Me too. Because if you're here, you are the 0.6% of people immune. Exactly, yeah. If you're susceptible, it's obviously horrible. Of course. But if you're the small percentage of people left alive, once that is done, yes, you have all these other issues to contend with, but you don't really have to worry about the super flu anymore. The creatures in a quiet place, they're there. you got to keep worrying about them all the time. So it's kind of an ongoing threat. I agree with you. It was an easier question than I thought. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there are a lot of other things, and I think we will see that as the story goes on, to be feared, not just the pandemic. Well, we learned that in Walking Dead. It's the people that you have to fear. And then the ultimate good versus evil. Well, let's finish out with Harold and Franny here. We saw Harold about town gathering his supplies, a gun, a typewriter, a new shiny pair of black boots. Oh, patent leather, baby. Uh, from the books, a flashy pair of cowboy boots. It's been updated. I want a Vespa. I want to drive around a little. Beep, beep. I want to have some fun. And all of the characters are realizing they need something akin to that, a motorcycle, a Vespa, because the roads are so choked with cars, cars, everybody trying to flee. It's the only way to really navigate around things. Plus, mileage-wise on gas. It's very good, comparatively. Yeah, well, I always said we'd take our quads because it's, yes, it's a little wider, but you can also do Mm all-terrain on that if you have to go off the road. Do a quad with a um, basket in the back. Mm -hmm. What are they called? It's not a basket. It's bigger. It's almost as big as a quad, like a little tiny trailer on the back. Oh, well, now you have the ones that are like the razors where they actually look like little cars. They have a a domed encasing so you can be inside. Do that and then have a bunch of gas cans and then all of your equipment. Your supplies. And they have winches. So if one gets stuck, you can pull it. We've had to do that on trails all the time. The other bike can pull them out. Right. And a bunch of guns. (laughs) So Harold's gathering his supplies. He goes back to find Franny to try to convince her of his plan he's developed. We talked about how he finds her unconscious in the bathroom, revives her from the suicide attempt. She does specifically say she didn't want to be here anymore. She's not too happy that he brought her back. So it it does feel personal, but she doesn't get into it anymore there because after hearing his speech about them being the future... Such a shitty speech. She agrees to move forward and travel with him to the CDC where there may be survivors working on a cure. Before leaving town on the motorcycles, Harold spray-paints a message on the side of the building for any survivors to find. Gone to CDC in Atlanta, Georgia, leaving a gunquit September 14th. Harold Emery Lauder, Francis Goldsmith. Um, I told you this was a bit more of a heroic event for Harold in the books. He painted it on the side of a barn with great risks to his personal well-being. His life had to basically hang out the side of the roof. It was bigger. Most dangerous to put Franny's name on it. She asked him why he even did that, and he says, we're a team now, right? It's one of many moves that he made that exemplify the intelligence, his desire not to miss a beat, such as when they have to get gas for their bikes later. There's a lot of things that Franny thinks to herself, how did he think of that? I wouldn't have known what to do in this situation. More persuasive. No, I'm talking literal skills, intelligence that he has to use that keep them alive. Gotcha. And not only that, but he's thinking of other people who might come by and leaving instructions for where they should go so that they'll be able to link up with other people. If you should find this message, we're going to the CDC in Atlanta. So they are trying to show you the positives and the things that Franny sees even here. Maybe I was a little bit wrong about him. 
he's actually smart. He's got some good ideas here. Maybe I didn't give him enough credit. For Stu in the past, we open up at the U.S. Army Research Facility in Texas, where he's been held for three days now, refusing to cooperate, as we said, until Jim Ellis comes in. We learn a few things about Stu here. He was in the military for a year before being medically retired for a catastrophically ruptured knee. Oof. That's some new background for him. I like the way they explain that to us, where the doctor was like, ah, that must hurt. Yeah, in the books, you know, he never managed to escape small town life. He had to start working at a young age. His mother passed away, and it was to help his younger brother be able to get out and achieve something more. Also a little different about the story of his wife. He is a widower in both. He lost her after only being married for a year. Um, Here, she's a former nurse who was in a car accident. In the books, she had cancer. And they were sort of shunted around in hospitals to doctors, nobody really listening to them. So Stu already had a bit of an aversion to the medical field. Sure. Which I kind of liked. Uh, But Ellis tells him he's not worried about being in there with him because these highly susceptible guinea pigs sharing his room aren't sick, meaning Stu doesn't have the virus. We get the flashback you spoke about seeing Campion crashing into Hap's gas station. That was a good scene. Hap's turn off your pumps. That's an infamous line. Turn off your pumps, Hap. (laughs) Love it. Also, what he says when he's stumbling out, the whole place was supposed to seal. I thought I was fast enough. Yeah, you never are. Meaning I thought I escaped it. He wasn't trying to do... He thought of his family. That's why he left. Yeah. A couple seconds left on that clock, same as the book. We learned that he came from this bioweapons facility out in the Mojave Desert, California. We hear about another man. There was a couple from Arnett here named Ralph Hodges. We talked about the potential of what happened to his daughter, Eva, how they quarantined all of Arnett. You think you're going to find every person he crossed paths with? As far as we can tell, everyone who comes in contact with this thing becomes infected, everyone but you, and we need to find out why. We need to take as much blood from you as you can tolerate, a couple vials every couple hours, run it through every test we can think of, run the rest of you through every scan. We have hope that one of these tracks helps us identify what's protecting you from this infection, come up with some way to protect the rest of us, keep any more four-year-olds from ending up like Eva Hodges. Stu agreeing to resume testing, but the facility's compromised, so they move him to this place in Stovington, in the deep underground base. Okay, so far, we don't see much of Stu. Like, I don't have too much of an opinion on what type of person he is, Mm -hmm. or personality. We're seeing him at a heightened state. But what we are learning is, it's been three days. Stu saw the accident, he saw the guy sick, he saw some of his friends get sick. He thinks they're being treated. He learns now they're all dead. Well, before he even learned it, it had been three days and he said, all right, guys, I'm done. Whatever, like the testing, I need to have some answers now. I was going along with what you needed because I wanted to help you guys. I was worried about my friends and what just happened with that guy and his family in the car, but I need answers now. So it's not like right away he was like, fuck you guys, don't touch me, (laughs) you know? So we see that he's kind of a leveled person, you know? He's very cool under pressure. He is the one who thinks when he sees the car coming, turn off those gas pumps, otherwise it will explode. And at every turn where people around him could lose their cool and do, he doesn't. Even when he demands to see somebody, it's in a very kind of calm, I've had enough of this. You got to tell me something. He's not freaking out, throwing stuff around the room. Yeah. In the books, he plays a bit of a nasty trick on the dock. Which one? The nice one? Well, neither are really so great in the books. 
But the second one who comes in who starts giving him a little bit of info, but then he is saying the classic words that we hear a call out to here. He's saying them a lot. I'm sorry, but that's classified. That's classified. And really, he's not getting very far with this man. So he starts to get fed up and he fake coughs. Oh. And the man starts freaking out and getting up to leave the room. He's like, no, no, it's fine. I was faking it. He's like, what? No, I was faking it. Why would you do that? I'm sorry, that's classified. (laughs) I like that. And it just gives a little bit of personality to Stu Mm -hmm. that I love because (laughs) he's not just going to sit here and be a pushover. This is ridiculous. He realizes he has a little bit of control here. Yes, and he also realizes in that moment, even if you want something as simple as a blood pressure reading, if you have to have men come in here and take it by force... It's going to mess up the results of that test. Uh. If you have to knock me out, it's going to mess up the result. You need me to cooperate. And I might not have much empowerment stuck in this room, but the one thing I have is control over my own body. And so I'm going to find a way to use that again, thinking very rationally and like a survivor. How do I make it through this? So, yeah, I mean, we get a little bit less of that. You're right here. He's, he's more of just um, a victim of circumstance. He does a little bit of that. Once they get into the Hummer with Cobb and he's trying to get him to put the black hood over his yeah. face. We saw a little bit of That's that resistance. bit of a stand that he took. Yes, he took a stand with, right there with the doctor. As much as he could. Well, the reason being is not because of bad writing. It's because they're using that opportunity to explain to us what's going on a little fuller as they explain to him, Stu. Yeah, and they want you more endeared to Dr. Ellis. So they have his... yeah. Frustration be to Cobb, which makes sense because Cobb is an ass. Yep. Cobb's a snob. Once we're at this CDC center for high-level officials, Ellis comes to him and he says he's pretty much stuck there, the same as Stu, because this man, Starkey, the facility is his brainchild, is only allowing movement between floors when he feels like it. Nobody's seen or heard from him in a couple of days, and Ellis is preparing to have a meeting with the WHO where he will present estimate numbers that he says will make the Spanish flu look like a sham. He returns later, sick and choking, telling Stu, well, pretty much everyone has it now. He says, to think, just a month ago, we were worried about Ebola. Mm -hmm. So again, that modernizing, putting it more in present time. It's important to mention from the novels, from the time the books were first released to the time they came out with the complete uncut version, many years had passed. So Stephen King did go in there and update some references to bring them from the 60s to the 80s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. And so we're doing a bit of that again to bring it up to 2020. I like it. It's at that point that Cobb arrives, also dying, and shoots Ellis. Stu manages to stab him. And we hear the omniscient voice of General Starkey, who's going to lead him up to that control room. Right away. You remember? I knew who it was. Mm-hmm. I was that like, oh, voice. Shit. Yeah. I-, I like the info that we get here, and this is why I come back to this. Starkey tells Stu his last contact with the outside was two days ago. Now, this isn't because of the quality of the facility. It can withstand, what does he say, a five megaton blast? Something crazy like that, yeah. And the communications are still on, but nobody's there to answer. Even Starkey is worried. That's where he says that Cobb wasn't under his command. He was just the man following a contingency checklist. He says men like him don't stop following orders just because the orders stop making sense. And it's frightening that there's still probably a bunch of people like that Mm -hmm. left out in the world with nobody to control what they're doing. He also has this really poignant moment where he shows Stu a book of poetry by William Yates. 
that his daughter gave him for a birthday years ago, but he never opened it until four days ago when he found out she was dead. He reads the poem, and I want to do so here because it's amazing foreshadowing, symbolism, everything about the world and the dark man. It's called the second coming. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. Somewhere in sands of the desert, shape with lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun, while all about it real shadows of the indignant desert birds. The darkness drops again, and what rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. I mean, incredible. Things fall apart. The center, this project blew. We thought we had control of it. It doesn't Hmm. hold. Nature takes back control. Chaos is loosed upon the world. Is it just anarchy, or is it the result of some evil because all innocence is lost? There's a second coming, this creature out in the desert. The desert birds whirl around it. It's born again, and that's exactly what's happening. This is something that Stephen King does very well. Insignificant characters, or presumably insignificant characters that you just meet and are already dead, have much more of an impact on the entire storyline. And you can feel it, though, immediately, even though Starkey's only here for a few moments. Yeah. This is an important man sent to deliver information. He's really, in the books, obsessing these monitors. He's got pictures from the bioweapons facility that Campion escaped and all the people that are dead, which we will see later when Campion gets out, those shots. Well, we saw it. He was looking at him. Yeah. Yeah. He is fixated on this one guy who died and his face fell into a bowl of soup. And there it stays forever. And he just can't get his mind off of it. That that's what happened to this man. And it's almost a representation of everything they've done. And you'll hear other characters throughout going, what did you people do? You messed up. Somebody spilled it. What happened here? Stu says, what's gone on? What did you do? And he knows it. Knows they're responsible. Imagine. The best he can hope for now is a dignified death. And that's what he tells Stu. He says he thinks Mr. Yates was onto something how it looks when shit hits the fan. He was proud of his soldiers, who maintained their composure much longer than predictive models expected, but handing Stu the key card to the exit, he requests, if anyone asks, if anyone's left alive to ask, tell them he stood his post to the end. So wishing him luck, Starkey shoots himself, and Stu runs through the halls and out of the facility. And there we switch over to present day, in Boulder, Colorado. We spoke already about seeing the burial committee team, more of those disturbing bodies in the church, This man, Norris, the EMT, saying he couldn't have imagined death on this scale, 7 billion people. So we get a number to what's going on, at least so far as we know. We hear they put away 1,000 units alone in that day. Units. You know, they have to keep describing it from a distance in the books, he says, to imagine the bodies like cordwood. It's just cordwood. Wow. Don't think of them as bodies because, again, who could do this job? Yeah, you have to numb yourself. If I was there and this is something we had to do, we couldn't prevent it, this is the reality, you got to find a way to lessen the impact to keep your sanity. Mm-hmm. We also said that, you know, this is where we see a little of the back and forth with Harold thinking 
Maybe he could be something here. The people like him. They respect him for doing this job. But then we get these moments with his memoirs. It said the two great human sins are pride and hate. Are they? I choose to think of them as the two great virtues. To give them away is to say you must change for the good of the world. To embrace them is more noble. The world must change for the good of you. I am on a great adventure. Jesus. Oh, man. That is so twisted. I remember reading these words. Same words from the book, thinking, good God, I knew Harold was in trouble, but this is bad. The world must change for the good of you. He contemplates changing, he says, jettisoning the hate. He was aware he could simply accept what was. And the knowledge exhilarated and terrified him. In that space of time, he knew he could become someone else, let go of the old grudges, the hurts, the unpaid debts. But this would have been to murder himself. The ghost of every humiliation he ever suffered cried out against it. His murdered dreams and ambitions came back to life and asked if he could forget them so easily. In Boulder, he could only ever be Harold Louder. Out west, he could be a prince. We see his interaction, as we mentioned, with Randall Flagg. This black stone that he offers him with the red lights, very symbolic. Pretty sure we're going to come back to that. And the next day, greeting a happy Stu and Franny at the food truck who invite him over for dinner sometime. He's just got this fake grin plastered all over his face. Yeah, I mean, it's obvious to me, but that's just because we know what's going on. But it seems that they don't get it. They don't see it. Well, they remark in the books that... Most of the people in Boulder didn't know because they didn't know the old Harold. So they're seeing this guy who smiles all the time and is super helpful and nice to everyone, makes these great suggestions. Only the people who knew him before would see how opposite that was to his old character, how false it all looked. Every once in a while, there was someone who picked up on it, a little boy who commented that underneath his smile, it looked like there were worms making him grin. Whoa. See, those words are amazing. They cultivate so much in your imagination. I think it was Franny at one point said, everything about Harold seemed to be lightly coated in slime. Mm. There were just, you know, these comments. But I don't know. How much is that going to work on the people here? It even seems to be working on Stu, who thinks that Harold could be turning a corner. We should give him a second chance, right? Mm. He shakes his hand, but of course, privately, later, we see him screaming at his typewriter and saying, my great delight will be to kill Stu and just maybe her too. We've seen that twice now. When he realized he broke his computer from the fall Mm. on the bike. He ripped it apart. And he screamed, and then his sister was like, shut up! (laughs) Oh, Harold. But even his joke, like, I I tend to think... Maybe you would argue this, that when we're with other people, I put people's guards down, I make them laugh with stupid humor or witty humor sometimes. It's rare, but it's witty sometimes. (laughs) Well, his humor with the baby, when he puts his ear to her belly, I forget, unfortunately, I forget the joke he says. And they all laugh because there is a twinge of like funny wit, but it was creepy to me. I I wish I remembered what it said. Damn it. Sorry, Clatchers. But it was... It was just unbalanced. Mm -hmm. Let's say that. The joke was unbalanced. Mm -hmm. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this plot and take us to our dream reading for the episode. So on a scale of one to ten dreams, Jason, what do you give the premiere, the end? I've said this before because we've covered many shows at this point. The first episode of any season of any show is very difficult to give a grade 
because you have nothing to grade it off of. I'm trying to make it a point to not specifically grade it off of 94. Oh, I'll compare how not? It, I'll compare <laughs> it. I'll, I'll have some ideologies off of it. But I'm not going to go ahead and, and say, well, episode one of 94 and episode one of here, how do they compare? Because I don't think it's fair. Mm-hmm. This is a new vision for this story. And knowing that uh, Stephen King is a lot more closely integrated in this one. Look, I see what the Clatchers are saying. I see what the internet is saying. It's not perfect. There are some issues. But again, I'm imagining Boone with that big novel in his hand saying, how do I make a script out of this? I think it has a lot of potential. So I'm going to give this a solid eight. Mm, Okay. Too high? No, that's lower than I thought you were going to go. I can't go too high because uh, it's got to get better. You know, it's only going to move up from here. There's a lot of characters I'm really curious. I'm really excited to to be introduced to. Mm-hmm. I'm not too positive. I, I, I'm, there's not enough to have an opinion yet, but I'm a little worried about Whoopi. It, I've been saying that since the prepper episode that yeah. she was one of my biggest casting concerns because I thought she would take me out of it. I, she, she can't be Ruby D. Not that she should try to be Ruby D. No one should, but... As much as they age her up, it's nowhere close to 108. And is it going to have the gravitas? I mean, this is the emblem of good. There's a a mystical, biblical kind of weight that that carries. Yes, she is a normal person. The book goes through great pains to show. She's just a regular person. She's not a divine being. Right. She's been almost um, burdened with, with this. She's this old because God needs her. To be alive this long. Yeah, she mentions that several times. It'd probably be easier if I could have had my time by now, but God has a purpose for me. Mm. I mean, that's a lot to try to represent in a character. We've only seen Whoopi on screen for three seconds. Yeah, I love the cane on the ground. That was very impactful, though. But (laughs) I I think it's going to be hard to live up to. I'm going to have a hard time forgetting Whoopi. Yeah, but I'm going to give her all the benefits of the doubt. The reason why I bring her up is I'm starting at an eight because it was really good. I enjoyed it tremendous. I wasn't left saying once we stopped it, like, what the hell was that? <laughs> what did we get ourselves into? Yeah. We just committed to our podcast for this. No, I was excited to talk about it. You were as well. Stephen King's going to be on next week. It's going to be <laughs> amazing. <laughs> well, I think that's tremendous. I am so happy that we are doing this. I am so happy that you are brought on board the world of Stephen King. I'll be right with you taking that stand. This is one of my favorite stories ever. Forget about Stephen King properties. When I talk about my all-time favorite books, we mentioned me reading, I don't know if I've ever said how many times. I hesitate to hazard a guess. Well over 40. Yeah, you said it at the top of the coffee break. Between listening and, between reading and listening to the audio. Mm. I tried not to have high expectations going into this because I can't remove the novel in the 94 series. Mm. It's impossible for me at this point. It's been so many years waiting for a new adaptation to take place. But I said, keep it calm. This is going to be something (laughs) different. Throughout the entire first episode, I kept telling you, this actually feels truer to the book. I can't believe what a great job they're doing with this. I'm really enjoying this. I'm going to go all out. I'm going to give this a 9.5 dreams. Holy shit, you're starting high. I am going to give it to them where possible because I don't know what's going to happen in the future, better or worse. My only qualm, the one and only thing, was the Franny representation, and I think that has yeah. places yet to go. I'll, I will dock them points if mm-hmm. they don't follow up on that or do it right. Yeah. 
Uh, but here they're getting the benefit of the doubt. Oh, I don't think we said this yet. I'm Jason Pistorino. <laughs> I'm Christina Lomagino. And typically I always rate much lower and Jason rates too high. So you're coming in on a very bizarre episode. Very weird. Let's head over to MVS to see who took our most valuable stand this week. Every week via Twitter at CKC Podcast, we ask our clatchers, who is your MBA? <laughs> MBAF. Who was the... <laughs> who was your most valuable stand? Your MVP, your favorite character of that episode. Now, it's important to say, for this segment previous times we've mentioned, it doesn't necessarily have to be a character you like. Mm -hmm. We very often have antagonists on this list because it's about who moved the plot forward, who had some big character arcs in development, who took a stand on either side. Who took control? I mean, in Game of Thrones, we often had Cersei. Mm -hmm. No one liked her. But in that specific episode, she took control. She definitely won that we episode. We had the Night King on. We had the Night King. Yeah, no one likes him. But in that specific episode, who got it? So it's not who you like or the good guy you're rooting for. It's that episode who won. Thinking ahead, Randall Flagg will probably be on a poll at some point. Sure. And as we said in the coffee break, admittedly, the first couple episodes are a little difficult because everyone's cultivating their environment. They're... they're coming into their own, so no one's going to make a solid stand yet. But nevertheless, this week we asked you Harold, Stu, Dr. Ellis, and Campion. Coming in at last place <laughs> is Harold. With zero percent. Now, I get it. Who likes Harold? Again, though, it's not about liking him. He did make some steps here, but you know what ruins it, Chris, is that this episode, oddly enough, we saw his full arc beginning, middle, well, not end, but once they get to mid, Colorado. Beginning to mid. So we saw that he kind of lost that little game he was trying to do of, of gaining control. But of it her. seems like he's got a lot of people fooled, even if yeah, not Franny. True. So I don't know. Coming in second place with 14.3%. Was Campion. Good for you, Campion. Good for you. I mean, you're patient zero. You spread yeah. the virus. You're well, responsible for the death of the whole world. <laughs> what he did was very valuable to I the storyline. he took a freaking stand, let's say that much. <laughs> it didn't work out too hot for him or anyone else. It's not really his fault. It's Project Blue's fault. He was just trying to save himself and his family. But, oh man, when you talk about moving things forward. It's Flag's fault. He was the Kickstarter, though. When he hit that button, that those doors should have been closed. For everything. Yeah. No, he the did. The story yeah. wouldn't have happened if Campion didn't get out. Not at all. And tied for first place is Stu and Dr. Ellis. I love that. 42.9% because uh, they go hand in hand in this episode. It, it makes so much sense. We could see in his speeches what they were trying to do. They needed to find out why Stu did not get sick. Mm -hmm. You got to, right? So that you can heal the rest of the world. He's at least treating him like a human. He's, he's giving them the information, even too much so, where he probably would have gotten in trouble. But then you got Stu, who saved himself with a little murder, but also you see the softer side of him when he's talking to the general. Yeah, we very rarely have ties. I think it's happened, uh, you know, a couple of times. But it's very interesting. Our two quote-unquote good characters here, hmm. definitely they, they both took a lot of action. Let's see what the Clatchers had to say about it. Michelle said, it doesn't look like we're getting the stand in the UK yet. Oh, no. Well, Michelle, yeah. um, this might be a future company that we might, if life treats us well, uh, have as a sponsor. But a VPN would help with that. But I'm not gonna, I won't say anything more. 
Because they're not paying us. Yeah, the access is a little tough. We mentioned that to both the show. Although, you know, CBS All Access, you can sign up. You can change your plan at any point in time. So you could do it for a couple of months while the stand is running. It's really not too bad. But even just finding podcasts on this. Now, this depends which pod app you're using. Because it seemed a little bit easier putting into something like Spotify, whereas the iTunes, the iPodcast app on Apple, I don't know what's going on with those search results. If you're having trouble finding it, it's not just you. And that's why we hope that you tell your friends and family about us and you show them how to get to our podcast. Because in iTunes, you put the stand, you're not going to get our podcast at all. You'll search through all of them. You won't get it. You're not going to get anything on the stand. You have to search CKC Podcast. But in Spotify, you put the stand, CBS, we're the first ones. Mm-hmm. It's difficult. I hope, uh, <laughs> I hope we have listeners. It's and too early to know. a lot of people use the, the Apple app. So continuing along here, Brian says, Dr. Ellis was great. He said exactly what I'd want to hear if I was in Stu's shoes. Absolutely. As I said before, he was there for us just as much as he was there for Stu because mm-hmm. he was explaining it to us too. Yeah, he said, you know, I'm stuck here, same thing as you. I don't really have a lot of control in this situation. Boldly going wherever, nice name, (laughs) says I'm a little disappointed in the way it goes back and forth without any real explanation as to what's happening. If I hadn't read the book, I'd probably be lost. I like the actors and think they did well. Lots of episodes to go, though, and I'm looking forward to it. You're not alone there. Um, A lot of people have that view. The more I think about it, you're right. But I'm giving them all the benefits of the doubt because it's episode one. It's intriguing enough to make you want to watch episode two. And if they just want to keep you in the dark a little bit, it's cool. But if they try to pull a season two of Westworld and keep you in the dark till the last episode of the last five minutes of the episode of that season, then you can go fuck yourself. <laughs> well, well, and it's, it's really hard because... I don't know what it's like for somebody who this is their first exposure mm. to the stand. That's I why can't I even, wish I was. I can't even get in that mind frame yeah. of would this be too hard to follow? I, I do think they're a little dependent on people having that knowledge. If this is your first time watching the stand and you haven't read the books, I would love to hear what you have to say. Please feel free to write in so we can know if this is working for you or not. So you can email us anytime, contact at coffeeclatchcrew.com. You can comment on our polls on Twitter, or you can call in. Yeah, we have a voicemail. It's ckc.6606. That's 252-368-6606. If you make a mistake, no worries. Just tell us, forget that. I'm going again, and we will edit it out. You don't have to be nervous. You can tell us what you thought about the MVS for that week and how the series is working for you in general. Failed Gimmick said they did a great job making us care about the Doctor in just one episode. Agreed. Honorable mention to J.K. Simmons reading my favorite poem. Nice. The center cannot hold. I love it. Linda says, I'm excited you are covering this show. My partner wants to watch. I'm indifferent, but I might have to watch just so I can listen to the pod. Let your partner persuade you. Yes. It's worth it. Don't take your stand on this one. (laughs) Let him persuade you. (laughs) Also, Kirk wrote in, and he has a ton of really great thoughts about the book. I don't want to deep dive too much into the novel. But just as a highlight, he got the audiobook for The Stand. By the way, they say at the top of it, apparently, it's a 48-hour listen. Woo! Because we're talking about the complete uncut. I'll tell you right away, it's worth it. You're going to be wishing it was longer because you get so attached to this. The narrator is great. 
Kirk asked if you would recommend the original or expanded version. Whether you're listening or reading, definitely the expanded because mm-hmm. there are some characters and things that were not in the first one, and we may or may not get them this time around. And Stephen King, in the extended version, actually explains how heartbreaking it was when the editor said, you got to cut this down. Why he did it, how he changed it. And how it lost some soul. It's really a great listen. Kirk highlights some of that King excellent prose we were talking about. The dialogue between characters in the opening scenes at Hap's gas station. It says, quote, Stu, who only understood they were in a hell of a pinch, turned down Hap's voice to a meaningless drone and watched the Chevy pitch and yaw its way on up the road. And he says a lot more, but we don't want to... Oh, a ton more. I'm just giving you what's relevant to this episode. Josh Mule via Facebook said, I enjoyed the episode, but I'm not sure how how I feel about the casting. I can't put my finger on exactly why, but I'm just not buying Marston as Stu. Mm. Mm. But Whoopi is my biggest issue. Well, there you go. I wish they would have casted a lesser known actress for her role. Yeah. Yeah. That's our concerns too, Josh. I'm hoping though. I'm staying positive. I'm hoping she pulls it out and we're going to be like, yes, she did amazing. Maybe I'm biased because I don't like her in real life. But to me, seeing her in that important role is jarring. Mm -hmm. I see sister act or ghost and it just takes me out of it. That's all after just seeing her for a total of a few seconds. So I'm not looking forward to seeing her even more when her story really expands. I'll say this. I mean, and we've been bitten in the ass with this because we are staying positive for the last season of Game of Thrones. So this might bite us in the ass, but I'll say, Josh... Just try to put rose-colored glasses on the first couple of episodes and see if you can get past that. Doesn't always work, and in the end, you might be like, you just cheated me. Jason, you are always the positive view. I'm actually normally the first to criticize. Not unduly. I try not to rag on anything or nitpick, but I'm not afraid to point it out when something doesn't work for me. I do love Marsden so, so far as Stu. I had my reservations about Upcoming characters that I won't say yet because we haven't seen them, but also Whoopi being the big one. I'm going to take a different approach to you, not block it out and go with the flow. But actually, once we see more of her, maybe Mm. it settles better into this role. Okay. When we have more than just three seconds to kind of base that on. Yeah. So just like Franny, I'm going to see what they do with more time before I draw that line. Well, and lastly, a thank you to Nicholas who sent us an article by The Hollywood Reporter on The Stand premiere explained. There's also another good one out there from Vulture about a synopsis of this first episode, The End. So if you still have some questions and you're looking for better breakdowns, those are two great articles to check out. But Jason, we have to give our MVS for the episode. Um, so freaking, I'm going to, you know what? I'm going Dr. Ellis. I knew you would. I really liked him. I liked him. He He was comforting to me and just imagining myself as Stu it felt like they were bonding they had a friendship no I think that's good he was a great character I'm gonna give my MVS to Stu I do enjoy James Marsden so far I do like Stu's coolness in the face of a crisis yeah his determination to keep moving forward and be a survivor and I like what his storyline exposes us to the other information we get to see the other characters we get to meet but I definitely agree with failed gimmick. The honorable mention here has to go to Starkey, (laughs) who for such a short space of time was a real standout character. Clatchers, just a reminder, next week is Christmas. This drops on Thursday. That's Christmas Day. 
So we have a little bit of a bind here. Christina's going to be with her family. I'm going to be with my family. We won't be together. And we will not be watching the show on Christmas Day, mm-hmm. unfortunately. I wish they would skip it or at least wait till after Christmas. It's weird. Suffice to say, we're going to be watching it separately. And if need be, we're going to be doing this podcast without our studio equipment. And it'll be via Skype mm-hmm. or Zoom. So the audio won't be as good. The audio will be shite. We're doing the best we can. Or it'll just be super late. No, most likely it's just going to be bad. Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're not really sure. It's probably going to be later either way. Um, but it's just for this episode. Once we get to three, we'll be returning back to normal quality and schedule. So we're going to do the best we can just to get something out to you during this holiday season. By the way... Happy holidays to everyone. We hope you stay safe and you enjoy. And that is going to take me very easily to our spoiler section, during which point we're going to take a more in-depth look at General Starkey and the Superflu. And then we're going to talk about what's coming up on the next episode. So if you are afraid of any of that information, we will see you next time when we review episode two. If you don't want to know things, this is your warning. Closer Look is just mild because we get a little more in-depth based on book knowledge of some of the characters, the things that we're seeing here, themes. It might tell you some more information that that you wouldn't like to know, but it's not too bad. I want to talk first about General Billy Starkey. In the novels, we learn as the commanding officer of Project Blue, Starkey is aware that once loose, the superflu is almost impossible to control. Why? Well, due to its constant mutations, meaning a vaccine to stop it would be impossible to create. They talk about people every time they start to throw the flu off, it mutates and the body just can't fight it Mm. because it keeps changing. So with a lot of the victims, they would get to a point where the illness was getting really bad and then their fever would break and they would feel better. Oh, And it was so scary to the loved ones who were around caring for them because they thought they were turning a corner. And then all of a sudden it got worse and they died. One would argue that's the way the virus is morphing so that it can spread. We'll make you feel better now so that you go around other people and we can spread and then we'll just kill you. And this was, in fact, created as a biological weapon. So it was engineered Mm. to be something that would continue mutating and changing. What were we thinking? Because now once it gets out, there's no way to stop it. Starkey in the novels, though compassionate goes to extreme lengths to cover up the accident and the ensuing pandemic for as long as he can. For example, he's the one that orders the execution of journalists who are trying to reveal the truth, such as Ray Flowers. He's not a good guy. Oh, no, he is. He is the, the they when you say the government are doing blah, blah, blah. He's the government. (laughs) <laughs> but the quintessential, this has sort of gotten away with him, and he doesn't know what else to do as he's staring at these monitors, this man in the bowl of soup. What could he possibly tell his wife, he wonders. He does have compassion. But in an attempt to maintain plausible deniability, he activates a contingency plan. Ready for this? To release the virus in several other continents in an effort to conceal the American origins. Oh, my God. So the book really, really focuses in on the U.S. We know that this disease has spread to all parts of the globe, but we hardly hear anything about it. All we see is what's going on in our viewpoint of America. We saw it on his monitor very briefly, though. Yeah, and there's some quick allusions early on that it is everywhere. And, you know, I guess this is why. So you've killed the world. Congratulations. 
After being dismissed by the president of the U.S. due to his failure to contain the virus, Starkey commits suicide in his lab where the superflu was created. There is a lot of keeping true here in this 2020 version, but the superflu itself goes by many names. We've kind of talked about them. Captain Trips, Tube Neck, also A-Prime, and Blue Virus, because, of course, Project Blue. We hear that it takes out 99.4% of the human population, incredibly fatal, and that it was developed in this bioweapons lab in the Mojave Desert. It starts out like a common cold. So what would you see first when we see people sneezing here? tiredness, congestion, and a little light coughing. They mention it seems like either a regular cold or a moderate version of the flu. Second problem, most people aren't going to the doctor to get treated. They're not staying away from others because, you know, it's not that bad, right? As it progresses, you get increasingly worse fever, pain, swelling, and even delirium. A lot of individuals who are raving or talking to people that aren't there. There is no vaccine, and it is unknown why immunity exists in some few. They think it could be genetic, but definitely not hereditary, because we see many characters, the rest of their family passes away. They're the only ones to survive. There's also this ongoing question throughout the story of what will happen to the next generation, the babies that are born because we don't know how this immunity is given down. Dietz, <laughs> the doctor from the books, who is not Ellis, actually at some point, when Stu is being kept under observation, injected him with the superflu. Oh, wow. Under the guise of giving him a sedative. They were getting so frustrated because they couldn't figure out anything about why he was immune. But Stu's immune system swiftly isolated and killed the virus. Wow. With no visible signs of how. So he didn't even get it and just not get symptoms. His body immediately killed it. Yeah, it wouldn't let it stew in his system. Finally, you mentioned the susceptibility. In addition to humans, we know guinea pigs get it apparently just as fast. Dogs, horses, and monkeys. Well, guinea pigs are often used. That's why they say, I'm not going to be your guinea pig when someone's testing something. Yes, any similarity of how things might work in the human body, but the book is clear to say that it took man and men's best friends. So Mm. it killed the dogs, but not the rats. Mm. Nice. Took the horses from us, you know, as if it wasn't bad enough. Guaranteed roaches either. They're going to survive that. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I'm not sure about that one, but you're probably right. I'm sure they're going to survive it. So that's the closer look for this episode. Let's go into the next up, episode two, which is titled Pocket Savior. We don't have any kinds of descriptions for each episode, but we can guess that this is probably about Larry because we know from the novels that the title of his album before the end of the world was Pocket Savior. So we're definitely going to meet him up next. I don't know who else we might see. Remember, Clatchers, this is the spoiler section. If you're wondering, why the hell did she just say that? Oh, I've given you warning. Now we're out of closer look. We're really into spoilers because I'm going to tell you more. Not the episodes for all the remaining season. We won't do that. But about the final episode. And we talked a little about this earlier. That according to news reports, Stephen King has written an entirely different ending to the final chapter of the series. So cool. His own coda. I found out the name of that too. I have no idea what to make of it because it doesn't fit in with anything I know. But I'm not even going to say it here. Yeah, don't tell me. It feels super spoilery. Yeah, don't do it. Uh, what they did say was it's going to be written by both him and his son, Owen. And it's something he's wanted to do for 30 years that has just been germinating in his mind. Cavill mm. says, now whether he knew he was going to trust us to tell that story from the very beginning, 
that's a question for him. He read the first couple drafts that we'd done of the first few episodes, and I think really was convinced that we had a vision for this show and how we wanted to tell this story in 2020, and then agreed to do this coda. The title of it is Flag Wins. (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding. It's not that bad. I'll tell you that much. We also got some news about cast and crew. Yeah, since our um, podcast in October. Correct. So we found out someone confirmed to direct two episodes of the series. Vincenzo Natale, if that name isn't familiar, he has done Cube, Westworld, In the Tall Grass, Tremors, and the Hannibal series on TV. Awesome. This is a huge name. In addition, Chris Fisher, for those of you who know the magicians. The magicians. He's going to be directing an episode. This is all CKC podcast stuff. This is amazing. And this was confirmed a little while back, but after we did our prepper that we do know who's going to be playing the trash can man. Ezra Miller from Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. And of course, many other movies. Uh, That's another movie that we cover. I think he's going to be awesome because he's just the right amount of crazy (laughs) in real life. And he's going to be in all patent leather, basically naked. The little bits that are on him are leather. But also, another rumor where they thought the trash can man was going to be Marilyn Manson. We find out he is in this, but of a much smaller part. I think I know who he's going to be. Someone that was not in the 94 version. Oh, okay. So maybe not. In the 94, you know, we're in spoilers, but this isn't even a huge thing because it's a small role. He's called the Monster Shouter. So he's someone that we see in the city going around and saying, he's coming, beware, you know, kind of talking about Randall Flagg. People think he's raving. He's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Oh, right, right, right. In the 94. Very, very brief look. But I thought to myself, oh, that would make sense if it's a small part. No, this one, it's um, a certain driver. Oh. That's all I know because I didn't read the books. He's a driver. He drives the trash can man, I think. Nope. He drives somebody. Not him. Maybe Lloyd. That would make him poke. Because the only person really connected with Trash Can Man, who I had really hoped we would see, he was cut from the original novel, but put in the uncut version. Stephen King said he really wanted to include him the first time around. 94 series didn't do him. And we thought it was going to happen here. I'm talking about the kid. I found out the creator said one major element we removed from the story was the kid, a violent man that transports trash can man to Vegas. That's it. No, that's it. I think I just, in my stupid brain, said driver because it was transports. So they're saying that he's not in it. Oh. Okay, maybe I'm wrong. Don't listen to Pistorino. Well, I mean, originally they wanted him there. It says, while the produ- oh, yeah, while the producers confirmed Marilyn Manson was considered for the part, they eventually cut the role because they felt it was superfluous to the overall story. Okay, so, okay. I, I'm mad, mad about that. Well, never mind. Sorry, Clatchers. But <laughs> anyway, there is stuff to be excited about as far as the news. We will keep you updated as we move along within the spoiler section. And whatever else we learn along the way. So happy holidays. And until next week, you come see me anytime. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at CKC Podcast. And if you'd like to support Jason and Christina and would love even more content, including bonus casts and movie reviews, join our Patreon.
at patreon.com slash podcast. This round is on me. My great pleasure this delightful post-apocalypse season will be to kill Mr. Stewart Dogcock Redman. And just maybe, I'll kill her too. <laughs> <laughs>